Let's turn to Jeremiah 31, please. For the astute student, that means you're turning to the passage where the famous prophetic prediction of the new covenant is. But we're not going to go to that passage first. We're going to Jeremiah 31, 15. If you have your Greek text, your Septuagint, LXX, the Roman numeral for 70, because 70 scholars put together that text in the second century BC in Alexandria of Egypt for the Greek-speaking Jews, but you already knew that. If you have your Septuagint, it's Jeremiah 38. Pastor Stewart, no doubt you have your Septuagint with you. No, okay. You're forgiven this time. The astute student will also notice that we are interweaving another epistle into our H2020 Hebrews series. And hopefully this will be scaffolding for a future series in what I call two core for brief. Second Corinthians, two core. At the end of that wonderful song, which I hope we do quite often, I prayed that prayer, flow through this vessel of mine with all my heart, I prayed that today. So, Jeremiah 31, and I have the New English translation, the N-E-T-S, not to be confused with the N-E-T, and I'm going to take it right from there because this is the subject I want to introduce on the subject of consolation, what it is, where it is. It's all through the scripture. It's something only the Holy Spirit can convey. He's the great consoler, the great counselor, the great consoling counselor, literally parakletos has the Greek. Jeremiah 31 Thus did the Lord say, this is verse 15, a voice of lamentation and weeping and mourning was heard in Ramah. This passage, of course, is quoted in Matthew around the slaughter of the young boys that Herod instituted when he feared the birth of the king that would supplant him. And this context in Jeremiah is the voice of the weeping of Rachel, the Israeli mothers, because their sons were taken into exile. Thus did the Lord say, a voice of lamentation and weeping and mourning was heard in Ramah. Rachel did not want to stop weeping for her sons, because they are not. Thus did the Lord say, in verse 16, let your voice cease from weeping and your eyes from tears, because there is a wage for your works, and they shall come back from a land of enemies. And this is where I want to concentrate on verse 17. There will be permanence for your children. There will be permanence for your children. Permanence is a kind of an unusual Greek word. I say unusual because it's only used twice in the entire Septuagint text, and it's the word monimos, M-O-N-I-M-O-S. And it's evidently related to the Greek verb meno, M-E-N-O. That's a very much more common word. That means to abide it means to reside, it means to remain, meno. And that word is used in John's gospel 40 times. So it's a pretty key word in that gospel. It's used 27 times in First and Second John. So 67 times in John's gospel and John's epistles. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, faith, hope, and love abide, meno, or remain. Specific to our Hebrew study, the word meno is certainly related to Hebrews 7.3, where Melchizedek, like the Son of God, is said to remain forever, to remain forever a priest. 
And in 724 of Hebrews, where Jesus is said to remain forever or to abide forever. And as one who remains forever, he has a permanent, that word used in Hebrews 724, permanent or unchangeable. In that case, the word is aparabaton. You're going to see all these in print if you want the notes. They will be available on the website eventually. Unchangeable priesthood, aparabaton, hierosune. And between the two great changes, and that's where we are right now, the reason that there is conflict, the reason that there is violence, the reason that there is historical decline and sometimes historical uptrends is because we live in a time between two great changes of the human and universal condition. One is the great change of situation. It can only be perceived by faith. Now faith abides. Faith perceives a great change in the situation of humanity for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And because we recognize that, the love of Christ controls us and it's unconditional and unrestricted toward people because we see them in Christ. And if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. The second change that we are looking forward to is the change of the universal and the human condition. And that's the one we're really looking forward to. And that's the change of conditions that occurs at the coming of Christ when all of creation is liberated from its present situation and its condition rather and when all are resurrected and as in Christ they will be made alive as in Christ as in Adam all die so in Christ all will be made alive my point today is that between these two great changes of the human and universal situation and the universal and human condition there is an unchangeable priesthood of Jesus Christ. The unchangeable priesthood of Jesus Christ is the unbreakable link between the change of situation that occurred in his crucifixion and death and the change of condition that's guaranteed in his return as the resurrected and exalted one. That he ever lives to make intercession for us means that by intercession he extends the effect of the atonement eternally. He, attend, he extends the effect of the atonement eternally. So there's a thing called eternal consolation, everlasting consolation. So more specifically still, this word monomos, which is used in Jeremiah 31:17, may be very synonymous with another word that we do find in Hebrews, and that's M-E-N-O-U-S-A-N. I found that this morning in my most earnest study happens just before I come in here, after I've done scores of hours of study for each message. Menusin, that's related to monomos. And that word is used in Hebrews 10.34, which points to an enduring or abiding possession. And the writer to the Hebrews writes, when you were first enlightened, you endured a great conflict, a great struggle, a great period of rejection by your peers. And you may have experienced that a little bit if you had been enlightened about the USSJC, the, the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. If you've been at all vocal about it, you may have endured a little bit of resistance. Sometimes it's honorable resistance and sometimes it's stubborn resistance. Honorable resistance is when people put up resistance because they do have a basis for it in the scriptures. Not a good enough one, but at least they got one. They think, like I thought once. So they have, the reason they endured that, and the reason we endure much of the sufferings we're going through, including loss of possessions or loss of things, is because we know we have an enduring possession, and that's menusin, which is sort of like monomos, a permanent possession. 
one that rust can't corrode, one that moths can't eat away, one that thieves can't break in and steal, something incorruptible, something inviolable. It's our inheritance in the heavens, as 1 Peter 1.4 puts it. Knowing that, we're able to endure delay, sometimes loss, and adversity. So again, that's Hebrews 10.34. But menusen is used again in Hebrews 13.14, in which the writer says to them, here we have no lasting city. We do not have a permanent city here. He's spe speaking specifically of the Jerusalem of that time, where the sacrifices were still being offered where the Levitical priests were still offering their redundant ritual sacrifices, having not believed in the once and for all self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which took away sin once and for all and forever of the whole world. Here we have no abiding home, no permanent city. And again, referring Menusin Pollen to the present Jerusalem. Jerusalem, according to John's satirical view of the apostate Jerusalem of his day, was a, like a woman saying, no troubles will ever come to me. There was the assumption that she would last forever. The same thing happened with Rome, Rome the eternal city. But here we have no permanent city. If you've lived long enough to go through both Yankee stadiums, as I have, you know that New York City surely isn't a permanent city. You know that Chicago is not a permanent city. Memphis is not a permanent city, despite the residents of Graceland there. Washington, D.C. is not a permanent city. Pittsburgh is not a permanent city. Not even New Kensington is a permanent city. North Bennington, Vermont, might be. <laughs> but here we have no permanent city, but there is a permanence for your children, said the Lord to Rachel, whose weeping seemed unceasing in Rama. Of course, the great relief in Matthew for Rachel's weeping was the birth of a son, Jesus Christ, the birth of a savior. And in Jeremiah, the great consolation comes at the end of Jeremiah with the promise of a new covenant. As far as monimos goes, it's only used one other time in all of the Old Testament scriptures, and that's the Genesis 49:26. In Jacob's last words to his sons, speaking of sons returning, Specifically to Joseph, Joseph was the strongest type of Jesus Christ, of Jacob's sons. He said to his son Joseph, who had returned to him, he thought he was lost, he thought he was dead. The bloody garment seemed to prove that to him. The return of Joseph to Jacob was a foreshadowing of Jesus, the Son of God, returning to the Father, after his death and resurrection. And Jacob's words to Joseph in the conclusion of that blessing on Joseph, the patriarch Jacob said, a blessing of your father and of your mother. It has prevailed in blessings over stable mountains, monimas orion mon monimas, the mountains come into play in Hebrews, Mount Sinai, where there was an impermanent covenant, Mount Zion associated with a permanent new covenant, stable mountains, and in blessings over everlasting dunes, they shall be upon the head of Joseph and on the crown of the brothers whom he led. Very promising. Regardless of its rarity in the scriptures, Monimos is integrally linked in meaning both to meno, as we've seen, to abide, 
with its nuance of permanence, and Menusen with its nuance of indestructibility and inviolability. We can't imagine a city that is inviolable and indestructible, but the heavenly Jerusalem is that. And that's the city to which all the patriarchs looked, Abraham, Sarah, all the way through Samson and Barak and Deborah, and the martyrs of the Maccabean era. They all looked for this city. I call it Uranopolis from the word for heaven, Uranus, and Polis for city. It's also the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem who is above. And by Paul's metaphor, he calls her the mother of us all, and she's free. She gives birth to children in that city that are born free, not enslaved like the old Jerusalem, which he likened to Hagar in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. Now, this word study that I've begun with today demonstrates that we all have the promise of permanence, of everlasting redemption, everlasting salvation, abiding consolation. And all this goes to our firm hope. All of this is powerfully consoling. Now, what am I doing here? It's always a good question. Well, we're interweaving at this point, 2 Corinthians, 2 core into Hebrews, and expanding the ten affirmations of Tetelestai Phalanx, adapted from the early chapters of 2 core. I have that, the 2, this is the way I put it in my notes, just 2 and then no space, 2 core. And that's going to be something that we'll be using quite a bit because I'm going to be weaving 2 Corinthians into Hebrews, and eventually maybe even teaching on 2 Corinthians. It's an epistle that's closest to my heart of all the epistles, I think. What is the first affirmation? Our hope is firm, established, strong, 2 Corinthians 1.7. In connection with Hebrews, interweaving that with Hebrews, our hope is firm because, as Hebrews 6.19 to 20 says, which hope we have as an anchor for the soul. An anchor for the soul, both sure and secure. A hope that enters into the sanctuary behind the curtain where a forerunner has already entered for us, Jesus, having become an archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There it is again. Our hope of a complete salvation is anchored in our great archpriest who at the right hand of God in the power of an indestructible life in Hebrews 7:16 lives to make intercession for us always in Hebrews 7:25 by his intercession he extends the benefits of his atoning death perpetually. He ever lives to make intercession. I'm going to say that again. And by his intercession, he extends the benefits of his atoning death perpetually. Our salvation is as permanent as Jesus is at the right hand of the Father in resurrection. But our hope is not only for future world, but also in this world and in this life. Though we should never, and this is extremely important, we should never sacrifice our eschatological hope for expectations in this world. There's always a capacity for disappointment. There's always people who will disappoint, situations that will change. And so we have a kind of measured hope for our expectations in this world. If everything is put in your expectations in this world and then not realized, then your soul crashes and burns with the failure of that hope. And that's why I would say don't ever sacrifice your eschatological hope 
of a worldwide and universal transformation and resurrection in Jesus Christ for something temporal. In 2 Cor 1.7, then Paul says more specifically, our hope for you is firm. And I would say that as a pastor and from a pastoral standpoint, my hope for you is firm, for all of you, for each and every one of you, regardless of your status, regardless of your present or current situation. My hope for you is firm. That hope was specifically Paul and Timothy's expectation that as the saints in Corinth had shared in the sufferings of Christ, so they would also share in the comfort and consolation of Christ. Keep noting that word consolation because I want to give it a little further definition today. In Romans, Paul takes the big step and deals with the eschatological hope. In Romans, Paul says that the sufferings of this present time in between the two great alterations are not worthy of comparison with the glory that will follow. In fact, the way the Greek puts it, the glory that's impending and could any moment break in upon the universe and break out throughout the universe, transfigure the universe, resurrect all the dead, save all the lost, retrieve everything that's been lost, transfiguration, glorification, the glory that shall be revealed to us Romans 8.18 can also be the glory that will be revealed in us. For when Christ appears, we will also appear with him in glory. When Christ appears in glory, and he will. As the high priest always appeared a second time after making the sacrifice, he appeared a second time. The people gathered around him with great joy, knowing because he was alive that his sacrifice was accepted. Same thing with Jesus. His second coming is like the second appearance of the priest in Hebrews 9.28, and all the people gather around him. In fact, all gather around him for whom the sacrifice was made, and that's the whole world. For he is the propitiation not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. We look at the whole world differently now. We see it differently now. If we indeed have come to the conclusion that one died for all, then all died, then the love of Christ is bound to start controlling us for people. We see them in a different light. We don't see them according to gender. We don't see them according to ethnicity. We don't see them according to the epidermis, color of the epidermis, which is the most superficial way you can judge a person on the face of this earth. Epidermis, skin color. It's insane what people make things out of, make something out of nothing. But here we have this hope. It's firm. In Romans 8.18, it's the sufferings of this present time aren't even worthy of a comparison. This too is under, that is, with the glory that is about to be unveiled, apocalypto. This, too, is under the rubric of a hope that is firm and established very firmly. In 2 Corinthians 4.18, we are wisely counseled, 2 Cor 4.18, we are wisely counseled to focus our primary attentiveness not on what is seen and what is necessarily transient, but on what is not seen and eternal. What is seen is the present condition of things. Stay focused on that, and you won't stay mentally healthy very long. The present condition of things. What is not seen is both the permanent alteration of the situation of all things effected at the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is not seen is that. The permanent alteration of the situation of all things and all beings and what is also not seen is the soon-to-be-revealed permanent alteration of the condition of all things for the infinitely better. We expect from heaven, our heavenly city-state, where we already have citizenship, a deliverer who should come and change the present condition of our bodies and make them conformable to his own 
Soma doxa, body of glory. He is clothed with glory. We see him crowned with glory and honor. A glorious body, a body of glory. A spiritual body in 1 Corinthians 15, 44. So both the permanent alteration of the universal situation, which happened at the cross, and the permanent alteration of the condition of all humanity, which is yet future, comes under the rubric of faith. Faith is what? It is the hypostasis, the very substance of things hoped for. What's hoped for is not seen. Faith is also the conviction of unseen things. What is unseen is the change of situation that happened at Calvary. What is hoped for is the change of condition that will occur in the second appearance of our great archpriest in Hebrews 9.28. Faith is needed for both. Faith is needed for what is not seen, the change of the situation. It's not seen, but it's real. And what is hoped for is the change of condition. In between, faith abides. Faith abides. And I thought Emery did a wonderful job in his message on hey agape. Love abides. Hope abides. And he distinguished very nicely hey agape, divine love produced through human beings as a fruit of the spirit, and human love, which oftentimes is not love at all, but it's Self-love with somebody else in the way. That's my definition. So what is seen is the present condition of things. We note it. Okay, duly noted. I see that. But I don't focus on it. My life isn't defined by it. Just like we've all known sorrow. I've known more sorrow in this life probably than I've wanted to. I've also known much joy in this life. My life is not defined by the sorrow I've known. It's marked by the sorrow I've known. But it's not defined by the sorrow I've known. What defines me is the joy and elation of meeting Jesus Christ and of knowing him. That defines me. So we better be marked, we may be marked by sorrow, but not defined by it. That's why there's consolation. Now, I'm going to define consolation because I believe the word paraklesis, often translated encouragement, more often means consolation, but not consolation like consolation prize for losers. No, something far greater, something far more wonderful, something substantial, something well, it's something that the word of God conveys and should convey whenever we meet and does convey. Again, as I said, the Holy Spirit is parakletos, so obviously he gives paraklesis, the consoler, the great consoler-in-chief, the Holy Spirit, and the Lord the Spirit. So what is not seen is both the permanent alteration of the situation of all things and all beings and the soon-to-be-revealed permanent alteration of the condition of all things for the infinitely better. Both this permanent alteration of the universal situation and the permanent alteration of the condition of all humanity and all of created reality is seen in Jesus himself, who is even now at God's right hand. In him already is the change of the human situation. In him already is the change of the condition of the human and the universal situation. Now, if I dropped dead from this pulpit right now, you'd say I didn't finish Hebrews, but I just did an exegesis of Hebrews 11.1. 1. So we're further into Hebrews than you think. In fact, I'm going to do a little bit on Hebrews 13.22. Love, hey agape, hopes all things, does it not? What, is hope, what does love do? It hopes all things. It endures all things. And the first thing about love is that it's patient. 
love is patient. That's Hebrews, make that first core, one core, 13, 4, and 7. If I love you, and we can say that so easily, I love you. But if we say I love you, we better mean that we hope for you. I have hope for you. If I love you, then love hopes. Love hopes for you. My hope for you is firm is another way of Paul saying I love you. Imagine signing a little, well, we don't do notes anymore, do we? We should. We should get back to handwritten notes and handwritten letters from the heart. And we can sign it, my hope for you is firm, which is another way of saying love. So if I love you, then I hope for you. I hope that your sufferings, that your share in the sufferings of Christ will be followed by and even sometimes, if not all the time, accompanied by consolation and comfort that comes from Christ and is experienced in him. My hope for you with regard to this is firm. I may know more about your sufferings than your joys because we're, we tend to hear about each other's sufferings and should, for prayer's sake, really, should. And when we hear that, we weep when others weep and we pray, we intercede. And this is a good intercession in 2 Cor 1.7 and following that the sufferings will be accompanied by a consolation in Christ and followed by that consolation. So my hope for you with regard to this is firm. That means that this hope, biblical hope, is confident expectation. Now, another passage, and I won't have you turn there, but you may want to refer to it sometime. In fact, this is one of the best things that I can pray when someone suffers the loss of a loved one or some great loss. And it's 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. And this, my translation from the Greek text reads like this. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself, that's the key, and God our Father, who loved us and gave us everlasting consolation. Aeonian paraklesen, everlasting, we could even say eternal, consolation. Console, parakaleo, he uses both the noun and the verb for paraklesen, for console. Console your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. That's a comparable verse, 2 Thessalonians 2.17 to Hebrews 13.21, incidentally. In Hebrews 13.22, we also have both parakaleo, the verb to console, and paraklesen, consolation. Both the verb and the noun found Hebrews 13.22. And likewise, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17, parakaleo and paraklesen both appear. Aeonian paraklesen, eternal or everlasting consolation in 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17, mostly 16, compares with soterias aeonion, which is eternal salvation. Eternal salvation and eternal consolation, in one sense, are one. They are one. Because salvation is a kind of consolation for being in sin, in this evil age, in this corruptible body, in these adverse situations. Suffering is not the last word with God, otherwise he'd be unjust. It would be absurd to compare Jesus' sacrifice with the sacrifices made by the Levitical priests because they made sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And if you wanted to compare that with Christ's sacrifice, Hebrews 9.26 said he would have had to suffer many times from the foundation of the world, but he has suffered once. 
and his suffering. Imagine the consolation Jesus felt when he was resurrected from the dead. Was one of the things he said was, hey, Father, thanks for that consolation. <laughs> That's consolation. He had bore the sins of the whole world in his body and borne the judgment of them, unthinkable and unspeakable. So imagine the unspeakable consolation of resurrection. It's more than just a condolence or a consolation prize. So everlasting encouragement or consolation, everlasting salvation, Hebrews 5.9, brought about by Jesus' obedience, not yours, not mine, his obedience. And there's aeonian lutrosin or lutrosin, everlasting redemption, secured by our Lord Jesus Christ's blood and not the blood of others, by his own blood. He entered in having found eternal redemption. This word also conjures the reminiscence of pneumatas aeonio, the eternal spirit, who is also called ho parakletos, parakletos, like paraklesen, the eternal spirit brings eternal consolation. I would translate parakletos as the consoling counselor. I will ask the Father and he will send and we will send together to you the spirit of truth, a consoling counselor. And then Jesus called him another consoling counselor. Another. Alon parakleton. Why? Because Jesus himself was the consoling counselor and still is. If anyone sins, let her or him know that he has an advocate or she has an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, like the song says, the righteous one. An advocate there is parakleton, a consoler, a consoling counselor, also an advocate, a helper. Hebrews 13, 6, helper. So in John 14, 26, 15, 26, and in John 16, 7, he's called Alon Parakleton, another consoling counselor, meaning one just like me, Jesus said. The Spirit's going to be just like me when he comes. So I'm not leaving you alone because I'm coming to you. That's not the second coming that he's talking about there. He's talking about coming to them in the activity of this Holy Spirit, the Lord, the Spirit, another comforter. John 14, 18, I will come to you, meaning in and with this spirit. That's why Jesus can be bodily at the right hand of the Father and in the spirit with you, in you, walking and talking with you, consoling you, the Lord, the spirit. And finally... And this is germane in our present theme in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 13, 20. There is a diatheces aeonion, which is an everlasting covenant. Look at it. Everlasting covenant. God of peace raised up the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus, on account of the blood of the everlasting covenant. And David said to God on, the, on his deathbed, he has made an everlasting covenant with me, me, David. And he's established my household. And one translation said, my household shouldn't be one that he makes and establishes an everlasting covenant. You think you got problems in your family? You think you got dysfunction in your family? How about one brother raping a, the, a sister and the other brother killing that brother and then that brother that killed that brother, rebelling against his father, and ended up hanging in a tree with arrows through his heart. David's family. And then David commits adultery with Bathsheba and has a child that dies. And this is all happening in David's house. And David said, he looks back at it all and he says, but you made with me 
an everlasting covenant, even though my household is nothing like deserving. That's how it reads in some of the best translations if you read 2 Samuel 23.5. And don't get me wrong. David had deep and profound repentance, godly sorrow that worked for him a salvation not to be regretted. David had profound experience of repentance. And yes, regret. And yes, remorse. And yes, great mourning and grief. But he was consoled even in his failure and sin by God the Holy Spirit. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. It was not a prayer where David was insecure that the Holy Spirit would abandon him. God never forsakes us. But he was saying, do not take away that spirit that's anointed me as king. Do not take away my kingly role. And God never did. And he promised him a forever throne. So I'm using consolation as Jesus does and as Paul did. Not to mean something like a consolation prize to losers in a contest. That's not it. But as comfort and alleviation of the sorrow or grief which is surely plentiful in this present evil age. God never intends for any of us, and please note this and note it very well for yourself and others. God never intends for any of us to be overcome by too much sorrow. It's not his intention ever. Or overwhelmed by excessive grief. Too core, too seven. In the context, and so even Rachel, who was inconsolable, was consoled by God. She received no consolation from human expressions of sympathy and sentiment. The Holy Spirit can do things that human words can't do. He can bring consolation to the inconsolable. I've seen inconsolable grief that you're completely, completely helpless to assuage or say anything or say the right thing. And sometimes you try to say the right thing and the person who's inconsolably grievous or grieved becomes angry at you because grief and anger are tied together so often. So you almost have to say, I understand their anger in their grief. It's inconsolable. There's nothing we can say. We can say the best we can that we feel a sense of loss with them and identify with them in some sense and the best we can and but only the Holy Spirit can convey this consolation. Only the Lord, the Spirit. Godly sorrow leads to repentance and to a being saved that is not to be regretted. It leads to a being saved. The experience of salvation, 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10. Those who were caused sorrow, in the case of the Corinthian church, it's quite remarkable. Someone had caused sorrow to many people in Corinth, great sorrow through some offense that was committed. And it was a man that caused this great offense. And Paul said, however, that this person had a remorse or a regret or a repentance worked into them. And the Corinthians were slow to forgive and restore that person. And so Paul said, and this is a very sensitive thing to address here, those who were caused sorrow by the offender should forgive such a person, says Paul. In the case in Corinth that Paul was talking about, some discipline had been put on a particular offender. He was basically expelled from fellowship. That's how serious it was. But in 2 Cor 2, 5 to 11, the apostle urges the community to forgive and restore that person so that they are not overcome by severe depression. Paul urges them to confirm their love for him by forgiving him 
so that Satan will not take advantage of them, not him. The advantage that Satan, the best advantage Satan has in your life and my life is our lack of forgiveness when it's called for. That's his biggest point of advantage, bar none. That's what causes the toxic root of bitterness. One of the two or three things that came to me like an arrow in our ministry was when someone committed a horrible crime and on social media put the blame on me. That was, I don't know if you've ever been blamed for something like that. It's not pleasant and it doesn't, it's like getting shot and the bullet burns and it doesn't stop burning for a long, long time. But I'm only telling you this because this profoundly illustrates this case. There was a day when I was walking and still hurting from this, and it might have been a year later. And I heard the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit say, Do you forgive him for what he did to you? Not to what he did to the victims. That's another thing that God has to handle. Do you forgive him for what he did to you? And my answer was instant, and it was yes. Because I believe the grace came at that moment to forgive. And then the Holy Spirit said, that trial is over now. Not until then. That trial was over when I forgave what he did to me. And that was a, one of the most fatal blows. I mean, you talk about wanting to leave the ministry. I'll tell you, I wanted to leave the ministry. I wanted to leave the planet. And I haven't related to that very often, had to address it immediately with the press and everybody else. It was ridiculous, uh, the, the adversity at the time. But what the Holy Spirit saw, the, the whole satanic advantage in me would have been had I not forgiven. That would have been the end of the ministry for me. And it was then. Forgiveness closes off things. It closes off wounds. And it's the thing that, that cauterizes the wound. So I'm not using consolation in a namby-pamby way here. I'm talking about something that urges a community to forgive and restore a person who caused great offense to all. It's important to note that Satan takes advantage of people, including Christians, especially Christians, who refuse to forgive those who wrong them or cause them sorrow or cause people they love sorrow. Lack of forgiveness when forgiveness is warranted and even commanded, like Ephesians 4.32 and Colossians 3.13 says, easily leads to bitterness. Bitterness becomes a toxic root that leads too often to many being defiled by it. That's another way of talking about what Brian mentioned in his excellent exegesis of 1 Corinthians 5. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A toxic root can defile, can end a church. It can end a church. Churches have been ended by gossip. Churches have been ended by slander. Churches have been ended by the bitterness of one disgruntled person who passes it to another. And oftentimes this happens in a time of transition in a ministry where God has the leadership aside for a reason, for a time. And there's questions about where are we going, what's going on, and people surmise things that are not true about what that hiatus means. And it doesn't mean what they think it means. So you got to stop and walk by faith and not by sight for a little while. Otherwise, you'll surmise things about people that will cause a toxic root, and the toxic root will spring up as you talk to other people, and that, 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 the whole thing. Church, I've seen churches end this way. End. They're done. The lampstand's taken out of, the, out of its place. So Hebrews 12.15, talk about deeper in Hebrews, take care that no one misses out on the grace of God, and that includes the grace of forgiveness. Lest a root of bitterness or animosity grows up to cause trouble and by it, 
many are defiled. Now, I'm going to watch the clock because I don't want to take you past. I hear the rumblings of hunger. Not, not here in the first row. I hear it in the eighth row. It's an eighth or ninth. It's Mark, I think. Mark, Mark O'Donnell back here. He, he can't wait to have eggs and bacon. Bacon. Oh, let me think. Now, so if you're an astute student, you know what we're doing here. We're discerning that we're interweaving an exegesis of two core into our H2020 series. Interweaving. Well, if you really think about it, 2 Corinthians 3 is all about the new covenant. And its comparison with the Old Covenant. We're interweaving these two things. In any case, good hope in 2 Thessalonians also, to weave that in, means that our expectation is of divine good grounded in the unrestricted love of our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father, who has given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. Everlasting consolation goes with everlasting covenant that God made and that Jesus ratified with his own blood. Hebrews 10.29, 12.24, Matthew 26.28. His own self-sacrifice at the juncture of the eons by which he removed sin once and for all. It's remarkable, then, that the new covenant is promised in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, because it appears in the context as an everlasting consolation for the inconsolable weeping of Rachel, for the loss of her children into exile. The exile is going to be over. Paul likened our whole life in this world, in these bodies, as an exile, to be absent from the Lord. And then to be present with the Lord. And he, he talks about his confidence being that we will one day be out of this body and present with the Lord and in glorified bodies. I'm confident of this. Paul said that if the earthly house of our tent is dismantled and destroyed, we have a house everlasting in the heavens. An everlasting house in the heavens. When does that happen? Well, according to that, it seems like it happens right when this tent folds. We enter into our house. New home, paid for by someone else. I read in the update of the CSB Bible, and it's, I have it on, on the Kindle thing, I think it's called. And I, those things drive me crazy, especially when they don't have pages, they have locations. But... In the updated 2017 version of the Holman Christian Standard Bible, they have this comment in Matthew 2. It said, once again, Matthew introduces a quotation in a way that implies the Old Testament author, Jeremiah in this case, was used by God to proclaim his message. This was the unquestioned view among the religious Jews from the day of the prophets down to Jesus' day. In verse 18, that is of Matthew 2, Matthew quotes Jeremiah 31:15 which originally expressed the lament of mothers who grieved over sons who were sent into exile. Matthew's application here implies that Israel was, a, was again in exile, estranged from God and in need of redemption. Since Jeremiah 31 includes the weeping and then climaxes with the joyous promise that God would establish a new covenant with his people, one in which he would forgive their sins, and write his law on their hearts. Matthew likely intends to call this to mind and apply it to the Bethlehem massacre and the coming of Jesus. Just as the weeping of mothers preceded the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, so now the weeping of mothers preceded the establishment of the new covenant through Jesus. And that's why I started with Jeremiah 31 and the weeping of Rachel. Consequently, the everlasting new covenant is linked with everlasting consolation. Everlasting consolation also denotes the consolation of the eternal spirit who is with us. He is in us always, now into the endless ages to come. 
John 7, 14, 17. This hope, like eternal salvation, is given in grace. Ephesians 2, 5, Ephesians 2, 8. You'll see all these verses in the written form. It's experienced by faith, which is the assurance of hope for things, and in fact, in fact, it's the very hypostasis of those things, the very substance of those things present already in us and with us. The Holy Spirit, I'm going to skip this part. There's a part I want to skip here and get to this. And you'll, again, you'll see the beefed up version. I recommend the notes because sometimes I actually have more in the notes, even extra paragraphs in the notes. Once in a while, an extra page or addendum in the notes. And sometimes I say things in the audio form that I don't say in the notes. So it's good to get them both if you're interested. And you, they're just available. Whether you do it or not is up to you. Because Jesus is not only interceding at the right hand of the Father for us, but also has his very existence in the action of the Spirit and the activity and the presence of the Spirit, there is certain, certainly consolation in Christ. Paul said, if there is any consolation in Christ, and there is, Philippians 2.1, if there is any solace born of love, and there is, then Paul said, if there's any fellowship in the Spirit, and there is, these three are all joined together, consolation in Christ, solace in love, fellowship in the Spirit, Philippians 2.1. Then he said, if there is those three things, and obvious there is, then do me a favor, he said, and love each other. And think of each other more highly than yourself. And let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. From 2.5 to 2.11. Just as God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the God of all consolation and comfort, 2 Cor 1, 3, and 4, who comforts us in all our trials so we can console and comfort others in their times of trial with the same comfort and consolation with which we are consoled. Suffering, which is then consoled, qualifies you to console others. Suffering, not only just suffering, but suffering that's been met with consolation qualifies you to console others in their suffering. When you suffer certain things and then are consoled, you can go to those who are suffering. Sometimes you'll be amazed that the sufferings you went through are actually suffered by people, almost exactly the same kind of sufferings. Sometimes you are judged. I've seen times where, well, I don't, this is dangerous territory, but there, if people judge you in your suffering, it's amazing how many times they suffer similarly <laughs> to what you suffered down the road. And that's not time for you to gloat and say, well, they, got, they had that coming. It's time for you to console. It's time for you to maybe reach out and, and console with them in their suffering. Instead of saying, well, you judged me, so now you're getting the crap kicked out of you, you SOB. <laughs> and that's what the flesh does. It may not be attractive to you, but that's what the flesh does. I don't know about you, but my old man is always present. Still there. I know who I am in Adam. I know who I am in the old flesh. And I know the old flesh rises up and rebels. I know that. It's very close. But the Holy Spirit's closer. He's closer than a brother. So in closing, I want to suggest something because this would be something for a future series. Second Corinthians is an epistle of consolation. In fact... E.P. Sanders, and when I wake up in the middle of the night, I read my Kindle on E.P. Sanders on Paul in First and Second Corinthians. And then I just looked up E.P. Sanders, and he died, or he went home to be with the Lord on November 21st of 2021. So it's interesting. I was reading him during that time. But he suggests that Second Corinthians chapters 1 through 9 was a separate epistle. And if you read it, sometimes it looks like that. 2 Corinthians 10 to 13 
is more of a hard-charging epistle. And that was written first according to E.P. Sanders' theory. And then 2 Corinthians 1-9, to that one was written as a consolation for what Paul had to drop the hammer on him for other things. It seems plausible, although I wouldn't say it's certain that it's two separate epistles. In fact, it still hangs together as one epistle. But I would say 2 Corinthians is an epistle of consolation. And that's why I think it would be well worth teaching on. We need consolation because we're in an agona in the very fact that we are in a time between these two great alterations. We're in a conflict. We're in a battle. We're in a spiritual battle. We're in a time of adversity. The consolation that comes through the scriptures isn't a consolation prize. It's an important, powerful incentivization and encouragement and solace that meets the suffering and can even console the inconsolable and bring us through times that we never imagined. Suffering that we never thought we'd go through is met by grace that we never imagined would come to us. Unusual grace. And I thank God, I thank God personally that he has given me extraordinary grace and especially after going through some things that I consider extraordinary testing. And uh, it's like Jeremiah said, if I'd have known you were going to let this happen, I never would have been in the ministry. I never would have. And in fact, Jeremiah went so far as to say, you tricked me. You tricked me into the ministry. And now, that's in Jeremiah 20, he has this battle with God. You never told me. And like John Lennon's song, nobody told me there'd be days like these. Strange days indeed. John, if you were only alive now, you'd rewrite that song or do something far more bizarre. The world, the world is bizarre right now. Consolation is required from the scriptures. Hebrews also is an epistle of consolation, especially if you take Hebrews 13.22, not just as a tag, but as a sum of the whole epistle. Because the writer says, I hope you will bear with or endure. He's kind of being a little bit humorous there. I hope you'll endure this word of consolation. Can you handle it? I hope you will endure this word of consolation. If it's not just a tag, like Van Hoy thought it might have been Paul writing a tag, maybe it was. But if it's actually describing the whole homily, then Hebrews is what? An epistle of consolation, paraklesos. And so, that's why I wanted to interweave two core, because at least the first nine chapters, especially the first seven chapters, but maybe the whole 2 Corinthians 1 to 13, is also an epistle of consolation. So, Father, we thank you that, as you said to Isaiah, console my people, console my people. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. May this message serve to deliver powerful consolation because we're all in the agona. We're in the arena. We're in the adversity. We're in this evil age. We're in the consequences of human sin. We're in the consequences of our own failures in many cases. And so we require, need the consolation that comes from the scriptures of truth. Grant us, Father, the extraordinarily supernatural grace that we need sometimes to forgive because we see things that should be, that, are, that we consider to be unforgivable that have been done to us. But Father, grant us the grace, the extraordinary grace to forgive because we know that the kingdom of God comes into this world on a wave of forgiveness. And the whole thing about the new covenant, the everlasting new covenant, is you saying, I will forgive their wickedness. I will write upon their hearts my own intention and empower them with my spirit. So grant us, Father, that we would understand and link up in our minds 
the reality of the everlasting consolation which is in Christ Jesus. And may our hopes, Father, not only be for the glory that shall follow this age, but also your hope, a hope that consolation will follow our sufferings in this life. But on the other hand, Father, may none of our hopes in this life ever supplant or replace our eschatological expectation. May that hope be constantly nourished by the ministry of the word and the ministry of the Parakletos, the Holy Spirit, and of the Lord, the Spirit, and of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is a Parakletos, existing in the realm and the presence and the activity of the Spirit. And we ask this in his name. Amen.